we have Dr. Nathan Schleter coming back to the podium, and I'm not going to give you a second introduction, so I guess you can just come on up. Okay, so so welcome back. <laughs> I thought TJ liked me, but he put me first last night and now right after lunch, uh, which is not a nice thing to do. So I hope you will stay awake. I don't have a PowerPoint presentation, which is even worse. You're just going to have to listen to me, uh, and I'll do my best to try and keep you awake. I understand Clemson doesn't play till 3.30, so you're here uh, right now. The miracle will be if you're... There are this many people here at 3.30. Um, so the title of my talk is not the one published on the schedule. The title I chose is A Novakian Reply to the New Anti-Liberals. Novakian, that's a very infelicitous term. I'm not sure if I'm even pronouncing it correctly because I made it up. But what I mean by that is the kind of reply Michael Novak might give, were he here, to a phenomenon we're finding in our culture, which I am calling uh, the new anti-liberals, another term that I made up. Um, so I'll say more about those. That's, that's what I'm going to do, because this conference, as it was explained to me initially by TJ, was going to be on this book by Michael Novak, Social Justice, It's Not What You Think It Is. So I dutifully read that book and thought that I would make this kind of tribute to the late Michael Novak. Now, uh, this is going to require me to uh, give some definitions like uh, liberalism and, don't fall asleep yet, <laughs> uh, liberalism and, um, uh, and, and what this Novakian reply would be. And it's interesting, this morning I had several people come up to me and tell me, how grateful they were for the definitions, uh, distinctions that I was making uh, last night. And generally, we had a conversation about how much we really like definitions, good definitions that clarify things. Uh, and then um, uh, Philip, in his very nice talk this morning, uh, subtly attacked my 21-item list, as did, <laughs> as did Father um, D'Souza. Oh, it stung a little bit. Uh, I'm tempted to defend my listing strategy. Um, and I kind of will, I guess, in, in this way. Um, Aristotle famously says in the beginning of his Nicomachean Ethics that it's the mark of an educated human being to only expect so much uh, proof and knowledge out of a subject matter as that subject matter will allow. So. A uh, mathematician should not expect rhetorical arguments and defensive mathematical proofs, uh, nor should, uh, when we are listening to persuasive speech, should we expect, you know, in matters of politics and human action, we shouldn't expect mathematical proofs and deductions. And as it turns out, if you read the Nicomachean Ethics, it's just a wonderful, detailed elaboration uh, I'm tempted to say listing 
of all these virtues and distinctions and the parts of the soul, intellect, imagination, the, 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 uh, what, what we now call the concupiscible appetite and irascible appetite and, and continence and incontinence, etc. Um, and what Aristotle does is very different than what Plato does, is quite different than what Augustine does, is quite different from what Thomas Aquinas does. So four great thinkers who are sort of trying to describe and articulate human nature. They're all looking at the same thing, human beings. But they're identifying the faculties and powers, defining the virtues, and listing the virtues in quite different ways that I think are complementary. And so what I'm suggesting here is just kind of a warning to all of us um, to not uh, yes, we want clear definitions, but we also want insight. So it's been said by someone, I don't remember whom, but I've never forgotten it, that there's a nominalist mind and there's a metaphysical mind. And the nominalist mind is always worried about being taken in. And so they exclude, they want to sort of reduce that definition to its bare essentials. And they, they're, they're going to be very distrustful of deep, elaborate accounts of things. You know, Occam's razor, Occam, William of Occam is known as the father of nominalism. He comes up with Occam's razor, the assumption that is incorporated into science that the simplest explanation is probably the correct one. And so you see the connection between Occam's razor and this nominalist mindset. But you can contrast that with a metaphysical mindset. The metaphysician, unlike the nominalist, doesn't want to be left out. So the nominalist doesn't want to be taken in. The metaphysician doesn't want to be left out. So this, uh, Father D'Souza, is why I had the 21 items in the list. Yeah, yeah, that, that was a scholar's philosopher's list. Uh, I, my, my wife teases me about this. I always want to make sure I'm covering all my bases. I've got to, I, I don't want to leave things out. And so, um, to a fault, uh, that makes me less effective. I would be a miserable journalist and an even worse politician. Um, but I think that deep down, uh, those ideas that the scholars and poets promote end up having great influence downstream. Uh, so I'm giving a kind of philosopher's account here, and um, I hope you'll be interested in it because I do think it's very important. So liberalism, like some of you, when you hear that word liberal, immediately think, I don't know what a liberal is. You know, Barack Obama is a liberal. Hillary Clinton is a liberal. Nancy Pelosi is a liberal. Uh, and of course we should be attacking liberals. Uh, but that's not what I'm talking about when I say liberalism. Liberalism is uh, a public philosophy about the scope and limits of government power. I'm going to say more about what liberalism is, okay? But Novak defined liberalism as liberal democracy. So if it will help you, think about liberal democracy when you think about liberalism, okay? And here's the interesting thing, that the church, the Catholic church has had a very uneasy relationship with liberalism, liberal democracy. That's one of the very interesting parts of the history of Catholic social teaching. Um, 
there were outright papal condemnations of liberalism in the 19th century, including by Leo XIII. That could just, maybe that should just be the end of the story. What, what more is there to say? But I think we got a much more nuanced endorsement of liberalism by St. John Paul II. And so what sense are we to make of this? How are we supposed to understand uh, liberal democracy? When the Cold War ended with the demise of the Soviet Union in 1991, uh, people celebrated the triumph of liberal democracy. Everyone just kind of assumed that was going to be the future now that communism and socialism have collapsed. And yet, just 25 years later or so, uh, we're, we're seeing a great loss of self-confidence in the West in liberal democracy uh, in America as well as other places. The West is facing a great crisis of self-understanding right now. And so I think this is really important. Um, as I said, I'm, I'm taking my title for this talk from Michael Novak's book, um, the last book he wrote before he died, Social Justice is Not What You Think It Is. And Novak is known, uh, perhaps best of all, for defending the free market, market democracy, liberal democracy, against critics on what we would call the left. So lots of those, uh, you know, as, as we talked about last night, um, the way Catholic social teaching has traditionally been presented is Catholic socialist teaching. And so it's, it's been sort of promoted that what Catholic social teaching requires is a massive administrative welfare state increase of that. And uh, I don't think that's accurate, but Novak had to spend you know, almost everything he wrote, he himself being a former uh, sort of socialist sympathizer as a young man, um, uh, and then it switched around, spent almost all of his writing, academic, professional writing career responding to those things. But Novak also faced skeptics about liberal democracy on the right. Um, and these are people who argue that classic, classical liberalism, I'll call it liberal democracy, promotes materialism, individualism, and atheism. Now, since Novak's death in two, 2017, there have been a number of books published. Um, two in particular that you may have heard of. Uh, the first by uh, Rod Dreher is the Benedict Option. I mentioned that last night. Another one is by Patrick Deneen at the University of Notre Dame, Why Liberalism Failed. Uh, and these books that gave rise to a whole series of other academics around the country, uh, Harvard Law School professor Adrian Vermeule, uh, Michael Hamby at Catholic University, a uh, whole bunch of others, uh, all of them Catholics, okay? Uh, really impressive, smart Catholic scholars who have written passionately against liberal democracy and especially against America and the American founding. And I think it's true to say, by the way, it's worth thinking about. Why, why is it the Catholic? These are faithful Catholics. These are Orthodox Catholics. Maybe some of you are in agreement with them. I hope so, because otherwise you're going to be bored, right? So I'm going to be provocative to those of you who are deeply attracted by what I'm calling the new anti-liberals. Um, but I think Novak would have been really troubled 
by this rise of anti-liberalism on the right. And I think he would have responded, and so what I want to do um, is sort of invent a response like he might have given. Now, Michael Novak, if you know anything about him, he was not ideological. He was not shrill. He was cautious, careful, nuanced, and humane uh, in his style. He had no other ideology than human flourishing. And he sought to understand the conditions that are most likely to promote human flourishing. Uh, I hope he's in heaven. I hope he's not listening, because uh, I don't want to cause him any more pain than uh, he suffered here on earth. So let me begin with by summarizing the anti-liberal case first. Okay, that's what I do is just try to summarize it as fairly as possible. Okay. Number one, first argument of the new anti-liberals, look around. What do you see? Not just in America, but throughout the West. Well, to begin, the breakdown of marriage and the family, pervasive divorce, cohabitation, illegitimacy, same-sex marriage, with the aggressive promotion of transgenderism just on the horizon, Abortion on demand, atomization, and alienation within civil society. Follow me here. Uh, huge ep epidemic of drug addiction, opioid addiction, rise in suicide, homelessness. That's not more halfway through the paragraph here. Uh, identity politics tending towards mob violence, the factionalization of our political culture, the depletion of churches and the rise of atheism, crass consumerism, chronic dependency, mass shootings and crime, the Me Too movement, pornography, assaults on religious liberty by tyrannous and overbearing government that suffocates ordinary citizens with its web of rules and regulations so complex even experienced lawyers can't understand them, made and enforced by unelected and unaccountable bureaucrats, breakdown of civil discourse into puerile and even vulgar insults, dishonesty, distrust, suspicion, even paranoia. I'm sure I've left some things out. <laughs> uh, but just to be fair, I'll add economic inequality and climate change, okay? <laughs> so we got the whole, you know, we're bringing everyone in here, okay? Um, so that's a pretty good case, right? That's the new anti-liberals. Look around, okay? Something's clearly broken here. What is it? Well, is it any mistake that this breakdown is occurring in the West, in historically liberal and democratic regimes. There's a saying in law, race ipsa loquitur, the thing speaks for itself. So according to Patrick Deneen, and I'll, I'll use Deneen as sort of a placeholder for all of these people, though there are some differences between them. And again, I, I like Patrick Deneen, he's a good man, he's a smart man. He also contributed to this book I did on Wendell Berry. Um, Rod Rare and Patrick both contributed, so you have some sympathies with them, but here I have a deeper concern. So according to Deneen, liberalism is obviously the cause of these things. 
quoting Deneen, the underpinnings of our inherited order, norms learned in families and communities through religion and a supporting culture would inevitably erode under the influence of a liberal social and political state. Liberalism has failed, Deneen writes, not because it fell short, but because it was true to itself. It has failed because it has succeeded. As liberalism has become more fully itself, its inner logic has become more evident and its self-contradictions manifest. It has generated pathologies that are at once deformations of its claims, yet realizations of liberal ideology. So what is this inner logic of liberalism? What's Deneen talking about? Deneen identifies two foundational beliefs that he thinks are central to liberalism. Number one is an anthropological view. That is, uh, the anth what, he, what he calls the anthropological individualism and the voluntarist conception of choice. Uh, what we sometimes call um, radical autonomy. This is connected to the second thing, the human separation from an opposition to nature. So what, what Deneen understands liberalism to be as a new under, is foundation understanding of human beings as radically undirected by, by God or by nature. What it means to be human is to sort of radically be able to choose your own concept of existence and of the meaning of the universe. That's the foundation of liberalism, is that anthropology. And the further argument then is that both the, the modern state and the free market are both at the service of that anthropology. They both exist to protect, protect and promote radical individualism, radical autonomy. That was the way it was set up from the beginning. The beginning being Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century. That's where some of them trace the beginning of this ideology. So for the new anti-liberals, the free market and the economic theory which supports it is not a neutral system where individual, diverse individuals can sort of exchange goods and products uh, based on pr protections of private property economic liberty. No. The free market is not neutral. It rests upon a conception of the individual as a disembodied, self-interested economic actor. That's the claim. While justified in the name of freedom, the free market, in fact, depends upon constant state energy intervention support. So whereas we think that the state and the free market are kind of adversaries, we see that so far as the market gets involved, it, it takes up space, market space, whereas the market, as it grows, takes up state space. But the new anti-liberals like to need, think, no, these guys are cooperating towards serving the same end of radical individualism. And so there's no difference for them between conservatives and liberals, the left and the right. Uh, the left wants government to promote radical individualism. The right wants the free market to promote radical individualism. They're both after the same end. They just have slightly different strategies about how to get there. Okay, so, uh, so the claim is that modern liberalism proceeds by making us both more individualist and more statist. Third, according to Deneen and the new anti-liberals, 
American institutions are founded upon this radical individual, uh, radical autonomy and uh, anthropology. So this is just not a critique of, it, of liberalism. America is an expression of liberalism. Our constitution, Deneen writes, quote, is the embodiment of a set of modern principles that sought to overturn ancient teachings and shape a distinctively different modern human. Now, Deneen acknowledges some continuities in early America with a pre-liberal Christian tradition. But he argues that those continuities are really just merely verbal or linguistic. They conceal a deeper contradiction between that pre-liberal Christian civilization and liberalism. And it once again, Deneen and the new anti-liberals suggest that it was inevitable that given its liberal foundations in the Constitution, that it would, it would inevitably draw down on that pre-Christian social and moral capital and deplete it. So what we're seeing today was the predictable result of the American founding. Maybe they didn't know it, but what the American founders gave us is what we have today. Finally, fourth, um, there's a question, how do the new anti-liberals uh, respond to the alternatives to liberalism? Uh, there's no uniform answer to this question by the new anti-liberals. I mean, if America is as bankrupt as they say, surely there should be some kind of way of thinking about what we should be looking towards or for. Um, for Deneen and Dreher, it's a kind of localism which we should talk about. But here's how Deneen ultimately summarizes his position. What we need today are practices fostered in local settings focused on the creation of new and viable cultures, economies grounded on virtuosity within households, and the creation of civic polis life. When I read that to my wife, she said, what does that mean? Um, and so we had to talk about it. Um, Deneen is sketching the details, but let me just point out a few things about this. I mean, number one, um, it doesn't say, this localism doesn't say anything about whether there will be any larger associations, any, any sort of nesting of associations from the small to the large. So uh, what happens to like states or a national government, and what are our obligations to those? Uh, is it, not the, is it not possible that those large associations make the smaller ones possible in some fashion? Something I will talk about more in a moment. Um, but uh, most bluntly, when, when it comes to thinking, okay, well, is, d does the vitality, does the survival of localism depend in some sense upon paying attention to what goes on at the national level just to protect the local? Um, Dreher is very clear. He says in the Benedict Option, give it up, we've lost. That's his quote. Um, what I have said is, and I don't want to get into the critique too soon, but what I've said is, um, if you don't bring it to them, they will come for you. That's the choice I think we have. Uh, second thing to notice about Deneen's localism. I mean, it's interesting that he focuses on 
building new cultures? Um, what about reappropriating and revitalizing older cultures? Uh, there's something to me at least troubling about this emphasis upon uprooting and going to new places. Um, because it seems to me that this maybe exemplifies, in some sense, the kind of liberal individuality that Deneen otherwise attacks. That is, how do we sanctify the places where we're put? Like, how do we become present in the places we're given and are? Or is it really the case that we all need to move to Nebraska or Western South Carolina to live out our faith. That is, I worry that there's a kind of restless utopianism inside the new anti-liberals. And I will conclude with a remark about that. I'm not concluding right now because you're still awake. Um, uh, a third sort of observation is you know, household-based economies. How do, how do we think about economics in light of sort of larger economic networks. Uh, how do we think clearly about that? Jay has helped us with that a little bit. I think we need to keep doing that. The fourth thing is that, notice how Deneen looks to polis-like. He says, you know, polis-like civic life. life. The polis, as many of you know, is the Greek word for the city, the ancient city, the Greek city. And the new anti-liberals have what's, what's sometimes called polis envy. Uh, they really uh, show a kind of predilection for the close, tight, integral, small, deliberative community that existed within the polis. This is what Deneen says. Only a politics grounded in the experience of the polis, lives shared with a common sense of purpose, with obligations and gratitude arising from sorrows, hopes, and joys lived in generational time, and with a cultivation of capacities of trust and faith, can begin to take the place of our era's distrust, estrangement, hostilities, and hatreds. I think there's something very attractive in that paragraph uh, to all of us, but maybe dangerously attractive. Okay, so there's the new anti-liberal critique. Now the Novakian response. Uh, my attempted Novakian response. Um, so again, I'm calling Novakian because I think it's kind of in the spirit of Novak, but uh, he is in no way committed to anything I say about him. Uh, so uh, first of all, I would say that Novak would fully share the new anti-liberals' concerns about the pathologies of the West. I think he would acknowledge all of those things. So at that point, they're, they're both an agreement, there's a crisis of the West going on. But I think he would differ with the new anti-liberals on the causes of that crisis, and therefore the remedies of that crisis. Okay, so, and, and, and that's because fundamentally, and I guess here's my first point, uh, Novak would disagree on the new anti-liberals' definition of liberalism. Now, that's why I began with definitions. You see why I'm going back to this, okay? Um, because I think definitions of concepts really matter. And I think Novak would say that the new anti-liberals are defying liberalism in an unwarrantedly narrow and partial and partisan way. 
So they treat liberalism like a logical deduction from a premise of self-individualism, and then they interpret history like a logical deduction. You just plant the premise in the American founding, and you add maybe a few you know, middle, middle propositions in there, and then you're gonna get the conclusion of today. Um, I think Novak would contest this. On what grounds, okay? So, one question, there's sort of a deep background question here about epistemology, like how would we know what liberalism is? Uh, you get an argument about whether that's an oak tree or an elm tree, you're arguing about it, you go look at it, right? No, that was an oak tree in front, no, it's an elm tree. Okay, let's go look at it. Got some scientists in the audience. Uh, scientists could, by looking at the oak tree, tell us whether it's an oak or an elm. Where do we go look at liberalism to know what it is? Okay, I'm a philosophy professor. I'm sorry to twist your brains this late, you know, right after lunch like this. But the, the, the thing is, you couldn't look at it until you knew what it was already. Right? You couldn't find liberalism until you knew what the regimes were you were looking at. And so that would beg the question. So what I want to suggest here is that um, you know, liberalism and other thing, concepts like this don't just sort of exist out there. They don't just spring out of the head of Zeus fully formed like Athena did. Uh, they develop through time. Liberalism is a word with a history. We can't understand it if we don't understand that history. Uh, so many things in human experience sort of emerge and develop through time and through their modified and extended, corrected, abandoned. History is not just a deduction. In fact, this is a line I like from Dreher and the Benedict Option. He says, history is a poem, not a syllogism. It's a nice line. Okay, so when we look at that history, uh, what we see are some strange things. Number one, you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, the word liberalism is not used, the first time it's used is in the 19th century. Whoa, like, so how could Thomas Hobbes have been a liberal if we didn't even know the word until you know, 1820, uh, 200 years later? Uh, how could he be, that's an anachronism, right? Already, what's happening here is that we're taking a developed term to try and describe an experience and a reality. And so, Deneen and others want to take that word, which appears in Spanish, by the way, and then sort of finds its way into English through a kind of circuitous route, finds its way into Italy, finds its way into, as I mentioned, Leo XIII's documents uh, in the 1860s, and begins to sort of um, uh, take root there and develop. I mean, really strangely, uh, when Leo XIII is talking about liberalism, he's taken it through the, this French line, and so he has in mind the French Revolution. When he's condemning liberalism, he's looking exactly what's happening on the continent. Like Father D'Souza pointed out this morning, the ways in which experiences of various political, circumstantial political regimes can kind of, uh, we have to pay attention to that if we're gonna know what, what's being described or talked about. And so what you found in France, of course, was a, the laicist movement, an extreme anti-religious, anti-Catholic, especially animus, rationalism, an attempt to cut 
the regime off from the past. To you know, they they put a statue of reason in the in the sanctuary in Notre Dame Cathedral. They have new feast days uh, using a kind of you know sort of decimal system to rearrange the year, and then they've got you know these secular feast days that are substitute for the saints' days. You get my point. That's the thing Leo XIII is really worried about. But the thing is that there's a totally different uh, movement going on in Anglo-America. So people talk about the Enlightenment as this uniform movement. And uh, it still, con still continues to be taught in textbooks, this monolithic Enlightenment. But in fact, all the historians who study the Enlightenment treat it at least as having three mo separate movements. One in Scotland, especially the most, in some ways the most influential, then the French uh, Enlightenment, and then the German Enlightenment. And the, the Scottish one was the first, and in some ways, um, to my mind, the most interesting. The French Enlightenment is what gives rise to sort of the Anglo version of liberalism, which finds its way into America. It's the Anglo version. It's friendly to religion. It's not hostile to tradition. Um, it believes strongly in limited government. You know, we'll say more about this. So uh, what Novak constantly insisted is that the popes, the papacy, has for over a century sort of lingered in a kind of ignorance of the Anglo-American understanding of liberalism. All its sort of denounce, denunciations have been sort of directed towards that continental rationalist French version. And it was really John Paul II who showed the greatest sort of sensitivity to the Anglo-American version of liberalism. Okay, so, so this term has, and, and by the way, then that turns out uh, something very funny, which is that even in America and in continental Europe, the word liberalism connotes very different things. In America, when we hear liberalism, uh, when you heard it, you probably thought left-wing Democrats, like the Hillary Clinton, that's liberalism. In Europe, they hear the opposite. When they hear liberalism, they think libertarian, you know, total free markets, limited government. So we're actually thinking almost opposite things, but if you know the histories of the term liberalism, you know why those differences are there. Um, now, <clears throat> given this confusion about liberalism, uh, you might be thinking, oh, just get rid of the word. It's so confusing, just to not talk about it. Um, I understand that, but if we go down that path, what else would we have to give up? The common good, natural rights, democracy, social justice. I mean, you know, we've been having these issues all along. I don't think there's any way to cleanse our language of ambiguity or ambivalence without losing that metaphysical mind I talked about, seeing it in the depths of things. Um, so we're gonna have to, the, the only way around this is through this. So here's what I would argue. It seems to me when you look at the history of liberalism, uh, what you find is an, ex an extended argument or series of disagreements 
about the nature of limited government and the scope and foundation of political power. So you've got libertarians and classical liberals and neoconservatives, and I'll even include progressives uh, in this, who are all kind of arguing about the scope and limits of government power. And I think it's a wonderful, you know, I don't think there's any way to avoid that argument given the way human beings are or constructed. Um, but the new anti-liberals just don't seem to acknowledge that sort of nature of liberalism and its arguments. So uh, they do things like, you know, they focus on Hobbes and they totally ignore people like Francis Ferguson or Montesquieu. They praise Edmund Burke, they say they love Edmund Burke, but they're deeply critical of Adam Smith, the founder of modern economics. But in fact, Smith and Burke were almost best of friends. And Burke wrote one of the most sort of influential defenses of the free market. Um, so they were doing, Burke was not, he was a Whig. He was not a Tory. He was, he was the sort of, you know, in some ways the progressive of his time. So we've got to pay attention um, to these nuances inside liberalism. For the sake of time, I'm just going to move a little faster on this. It seems to me that um, we've got to go much further. If we really want to understand liberalism, we're going to have to go back a lot further. And I, and I hinted at this last night. It seems to me that I'm going to crib John Cardinal Newman here, St. John Cardinal Newman. Newman famously said, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. My view is to be deep in history is to cease to be anti-liberal. Because my view is that liberalism begins with Christianity. It's Christianity that makes the decisive fracture or break in political life. It's, it's hugely important. I mentioned this last night. Prior to uh, Christianity, politics was unified and centered in political authority. Religion and politics, religion was at the service of the state. You know this. This is true in the Jewish law. Israel did not have a separation of civil society and politics, and uh, the Greek polis did not have this, the Roman Empire did not have it. Christianity brings in that separation, and it creates a space for civil society, a whole way of life and flourishing, which is independent of in some sense, independent of political authority. From henceforth, in Christianity, the political authority is no longer the, the end of civil life. It now becomes a means to promoting the real flourishing no longer happens in politics. It happens outside of politics. That's what Christianity does. The political authority becomes instrumental to a trans-political good that it must acknowledge and recognize. And liberalism is really just a coming to grips and awareness of how exactly to understand limited government. Uh, I see my time is running up, so let me just say uh, two more things. Uh, first of all, um, there's not a shred of evidence that the American founders embraced anything like the radical autonomy that Deneen attributes to them. In fact, what you find among them are pervasive appeals to transpolitical right, to natural law, and to divine law. These are embedded most obviously in the Declaration of Independence, which appeals in the first paragraph to the law of nature and nature's God. 
And I tell my students this all the time. Oh, I know, that's the deist God. Really? Maybe nature's God. But how about the other references? He's a creator. Four references to God in the Declaration of Independence. He's a creator. He's divine providence, and he's a supreme judge of the world. That's not the deist God. And that's the God that the Declaration of Independence appeals to. Look at the institutions in place in America at the time of the founding. You will find nothing like radical autonomy. And so let me say one more word about how did we get to where we are today then? How did that happen? This you must notice. Think of every social well, th think of the, some of the largest social pathologies or problems that we see in our culture today. I'll just pick three. Proliferation of obscenity, breakdown, you know, same-sex marriage, say, abortion on demand, just use those three. In every one of those cases, the change in our law, which led to change in culture, came against the popular will expressed in the states by a despotic minority in the Supreme Court. Every one of them. The change in the obscenity law came from the Supreme Court. Prior to that, there were severe, significant at least, state restrictions on obscene publications and material. Most of the states outlawed abortion in 1973. Same-sex marriage, people talk about this tsunami of change. Every, and I think with one exception, in every case in which a state was given an opportunity to vote on marriage, it voted in defense of the traditional view of marriage. People are not hearing this, okay? This breakdown in America is not the result of a working through of the principles of the American founding. It's a working through of a foreign ideology which has been despotically superimposed onto America. And we ought to be troubled by that, but also take hope from it. Because it means that we've got the seeds of something that can resist those challenges. Here's my conclusion. Augustine famously wrote, but our hearts are restless until they rest in God. When this restless heart is not centered in God alone, it can be the source of great mischief, even misery. As Tocqueville so powerfully observed, democracy exacerbates our restless hearts by eliminating the sort of status-based hierarchies that existed in the feudal order that set our identity in place and time. The born peasant knew he had nowhere to go. He knew he was born into a social station, and there's a kind of comfort, security, and even dignity in accepting the fate into which he'd been born. But once it becomes possible for a peasant to become a president, there enters both opportunity and great anxiety. Every choice now becomes consequential for your future. Your identity seems to fluctuate all the time. This is how Plato describes the democratic soul. I mean, here's Plato writing in, you know, 500 BC, and he hits it pretty well. It's a democratic soul. He lives along day by day, gratifying the desire that occurs to him, 
At one time, drinking and listening to the flute, the electric guitar. At another time, downing water and reducing. Now, practicing gymnastic, and again, idling and neglecting everything. And sometimes, spending his time as though he were occupied with philosophy. Often, he engages in politics, and jumping up says and does whatever chances to come to him. And if he ever admires any soldiers, he turns in that direction, or if it's money makers, in that one. And there is neither order nor necessity in his life, but calling this life sweet, free, and blessed, he follows it throughout. That description should be familiar enough to be troubling. And it's no wonder that a lot of people would find these conditions profoundly alienating. And Plato himself puts democracy right next to tyranny. It's the last stage before tyranny. The burden of choice is great in liberal democracy. Is it too great? The temptation is to seek relief by surrendering our will to some authority in exchange for comfort and security. That's the root of the soft despotism Tocqueville warned about. But of course, democracy is also the place where drama, politics, and philosophy first took root. It's a great mistake for us to long for the unity of self and life that will only exist in heaven. Life in this world requires our negotiation and integration of a whole series of identities or unities of family, work, and leisure that help constitute but do not exhaust who we are. And I think rather than dwell upon the admitted ugliness and alienation that liberal democracy allows, we start to learn how to affirm with gratitude the rich possibilities of pluralism that we see around us to find, if not heaven, at least immediate joy in worship, marriage, child-rearing, conferences on social justice, caring for the poor, discussing ideas, sharing a beer, and one of my personal favorites, learning to play bluegrass music with friends. Thank you. Sorry, I went a little long there, Father. I'd welcome that. Amen. The claim is made the gospel does not include instructions for the organization of political or economic life, and therefore uh, the church does not um, baptize, if you will, any particular political or economic uh, system. On the other hand, um, the Lord Jesus uh, undermines all existing political orders, as you made reference to, by teaching the state is not sacred and Caesar is not a god, to which I would add a third that uh, authentic authority is derived not from power but from truth. It's the motto of our center, John 8, 32, every house is there on the coast, the truth will liberate the truth will make it true. My question is, in fidelity to those three principles, state is not sacred, Caesar is not a god, uh, authentic authority comes not from power but from the truth. Does not the church in her teaching necessarily have to undermine any political or economic order that does not correspond to these principles? 
And if so, in what way is Catholic teaching now undermining the political and economic order of the United States? You weren't reading that off a phone. That came from you, I see. So I don't see that in its constitution or an authentic interpretation of, its, of our constitution, there is any denial of the three things that you just described. Uh, I don't see any evidence uh, in our order per se that uh, there's a divinization of political authority, quite to the contrary, you know, our constitutions, and I think most of our history uh, opposes that. I, I see very much that, um, what was the second one? The third, go jump to the third one, that truth. That, that's a trickier one. To what extent is truth a, it's not sufficient for authority, I don't think, truth, but it's a necessary precondition for legitimate authority. Um, that, that's a tricky one. That, that, that's an interesting conversation because what does that mean for democracy? We, we tend to think that you know, the Declaration says governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. But you read through the documents and it's also absolutely clear that for that consent to be just, it has to be right. Uh, the framers were not majoritarians. You read the Federalist Papers and their other public essays, they were very worried about the tyranny of the majority. Uh, but that's, that's why liberal democracy is liberal democracy. The liberal part of it is there are certain trans-political truth claims that set limits to what democratic majorities can do. So on the third one, uh, I, th I think we can appeal to those two uh, with Catholic social teaching against, against the modern liberal despotism that we're facing today. What was the second one? You had three things. Uh, Caesar's not God. Caesar's not God, yeah. So, yeah, again, I don't see... Yeah, no, so again, I, I mean, I, I, I think most Americans accept that. And I think that that's written into our fundamental institutions very clearly. So what we, at the very least, what I'll say is this. What we're seeing today, that denial of those claims by many of our political leaders is not a continuous development of what's in the founding. It's a radical break against the principles of the American founding. Well, that leads to the next question. Mm -hmm. You made a distinction Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. Uh, yes, I do think that progressivism is uh, largely derived from continental sources, though with a dose of liberal Protestant Christianity of the late 19th century, it must be said, uh, which you know, America does have some, uh, it's contributed to some of its demise in its later history, and that's a different story to be told. 
uh, about what happens to Protestant America after 1850. Um, but that story is being told. We, you know, one of my colleagues has written really, uh, Richard Gamble has written really intelligently on this. So what we have, uh, just to put it most simply, is um, uh, you know, it, I think it's a fact of the matter that governments are only as good or bad as the opinion of the people that are governed. That was what Lincoln said. All governments, in some sense, are, are, are their limits are set by opinion. So whoever can shape opinion, will shape government even more. It's the opinion shapers that make all the difference. And I want us all to take this incredibly seriously. Uh, because if we keep all of our focus on political machinations, we might be missing the sort of political poetry that we really need most of all at the level of education and opinion formation. And I think that the correct political poetry, when I say poetry, I don't mean uh, sort of romantic, uh, you know, invented self-creativity. I mean, poetry is an imitation of what's real. Um, I think that what Catholics need to do, what all American citizens need to do, is to recover that authentic understanding of American principles. Here's the example of how, how someone can do it. Uh, I had this quote in here. Um, you'll, this is a stunning quote from John Paul II, in my opinion. And Novak loves this quote. It's, it's a quote that sort of shows... A, a, reveals a kind of change in the papacy that was kind of singular to John Paul II and also marks a change in Catholic social teaching. Um, oh, where'd that quote go? Um, oh. Okay. Reading the founding, this is John Paul II, reading the founding documents of the United States, one has to be impressed by the concept of freedom they enshrine. A freedom designed to enable people to fulfill their duties and responsibilities toward the family and toward the common good of the community. Their authors clearly understood that there could be no happiness without respect and support for the natural groupings through which people exist, develop, and seek the higher purposes of life in concert with others. So I'm thinking, you new, you new Catholic anti-liberals, you gotta follow John Paul II on this. What is that text? That's uh, from a talk he gave in receiving a U.S. ambassador um, uh, to the Vatican. Uh, and I can give you the exact citation you know, after the talk. Last question. Is the American federal system divided government, uh, separation of powers, and the distinction between uh, municipal, state, and federal, an expression of principles of subsidiarity and solidarity? And if so, why doesn't the Catholic Church do more to reinforce those distinctions? Yeah, great, great question. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm not sure that those divisions reflect sub, uh, solidarity, but they certainly reflect subsidiarity. So it seems to me that the, the, the principle of subsidiarity, even though the concept didn't exist in 1787 or 1776, uh, but that's exactly what they are doing. When Tocqueville describes America, and I think Tocqueville is so important to read, this is everything that he highlights in his praise of America is how from the ground up, 
Americans, beginning with marriage and families and the local associations. They've got this great uh, power of associating themselves to provide for themselves, to, to, to learn, to the way they found their own schools, the way they get together to build roads. So I think, again, I, I, the questions are tending this direction. Quite simply, I think with, with Michael Novak, and Michael Novak thought this too, the American founding really in powerful ways exemplifies the best of Catholic social teaching. That's my opinion. That's a conversation we can have, but I think it's true. Um, so what can we do to restore that is the second question you have. And I'll say at least this much. Retreating from politics is not going to be the way to do it. I think it's going to take, um, uh, there's no simple solution, but it's going to take le uh, changes in law at the federal level uh, to turn back power over to the states. Things like um, uh, you know, the, the promoting of what we heard about public choice this morning, having a voucher program for schools, uh, I'll talk about this maybe if we have a chance on the panel, but in Hillsdale, my kids go to a school that was, that's publicly funded, it uses state dollars, but it's organized, it meets at a church, it was, it's organized and run by parents in our community. And they wear uniforms, they learn Latin, they learn American history, they're reading great books, and it's funded by the state. That could not have happened 20 years ago. That, that is a kind of subsidiary growth that is a kind of thing, we, we can do it. We've got all the resources to do this, but we've got to sort of act and have hope, not expect immediate dramatic change, but work for the long game. So thank you very much.